So we are now recording. And by the way, lots of unknown comic uh, videos on YouTube. <laughs> All right. It seems like we have overcome our technical hurdles. Let the fun begin. Thank God. Always. Stephen, one of the things that I really wanted to start with was I wanted uh, I wanted you to start off with your origination story. I saw you on um, Shark Tank, and that's what originally led me to your website for Zero Shoes. And thank God I did because they're the only shoes that I wear now. Uh, but could you take us down your path of how you stumbled upon uh, the the I think it's Hiraka or Hirochi? Hiraches. Well, it all starts when a mommy loves a daddy very much. And then <laughs> uh, pretty much from there, it's, you know, straight line. So um, what happened was about 16 years ago when I was 45, I got into sprinting or back into sprinting after a 30 year break. And for the next two years, I was getting injured pretty much constantly. And um, I don't think I had more than a week where I didn't have something that, you know, put me out for a couple of weeks. And a friend of mine one day, he's a world champion cross country runner said, why don't you try running barefoot and see if you learn anything? Now, here's the shortest version of the story. If you run barefoot, bad form hurts, good form feels good. My first day, bad form. Second day, uh, I figured out what good form was. And that made my injuries go away because when you're good form, basically, it's not just that it feels good, it's that it's biomechanically correct as well. So I had a biomechanical problem. In short, I was overstriding. My foot was reaching out in front of my body and plantar flexing, pointing my toes. Because I'm a sprinter, you're supposed to land on the ball of your foot. But I was reaching out to do that instead of having my foot landing underneath me. So the correction that happened just naturally from paying attention when I was running barefoot, um, my injuries went away. I became faster. So I've been a master's All-American sprinter for 16 years. So right now for men over 60, I'm one of the fastest guys in the country. And I wanted that barefoot-like experience all the time. And I, A, didn't want to have to keep arguing with restaurants about whether it was legal to come in barefoot. It is. Might not be um, approved. They might have a policy, but it's not illegal. So if they don't have a policy, totally legal. Um, actually, if they don't have a policy, you can go in, If they, uh, but it is legal no matter what. Anyway, the second thing was my wife was getting tired of me walking into the house in our white carpeting with my dirty ass feet. So I made. I knew about the Tarumara Indians in Mexico who made sandals with tire scraps that they would put leather on top of and just a leather strap to hold it on their foot. And I made a version of that with some rubber I got from a shoe repair place, some cord I got from Home Depot. And people started asking me to make pairs for them. And they told two friends and they told two friends and so on and so on. And that's a commercial reference for people who are my age. Um, and eventually this guy said, if you had a website for this goofy sandal making hobby of yours, I could put it in a book. I have a contract to write called Barefoot Running. So I rushed home. Now I've been an internet marketer at that point for 20 something years, now over 30. And I built hundreds of websites. So I knew this is a great opportunity. And I pitched it to my wife who told me I was a complete idiot and would never work, never make money, any money and was a waste of our time. And so I told her I wouldn't do it. And then she went to bed and I did it. And I... <laughs> And the next morning, she kind of growled at me and I said, look, it'll be a case study for business that we were starting. And, you know, maybe in a couple of months, it'll be a car payment. And within two weeks, we knew this was going to be our full-time job. And that was just shy of 14 years ago. And now here we are, We're for three and a half years, we we're selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit based on this original idea. And now we have 50 styles of casual and performance shoes, boots and sandals for everything you can think of from taking a walk to running ultra marathons to being a professional football, basketball, soccer, hockey, 
uh, tennis, you name it, player. That's amazing. Um, the other thing that uh, I I wanted to point out that we have in common is my wife is also Jewish. And I've come <laughs> to her with several ideas. And she always says, no, that's not going to work. It's a terrible idea. And then... Well, we're, we're the flip side. Since now I argue, you know, we're technically Jewish or I used to call my parents Christmas and Easter Jews. So, you know, they went to synagogue on the high holidays. And but I have, you know, my my Jewish identity is at, at best uh, barely there. Um, and my wife is was raised with nothing in particular, but she's just a really, really smart business person. So she kind of looked at this thing where we had, you know, this goofy ass sandal thing and went, eh, I don't see it. Um, so, but she, but she was smart enough happily that the moment she saw this is real, she walked into the kitchen and went, I'm all in. And uh, she was our, originally our COO, CFO. I'm kind of, you know, chief marketing officer and um, was doing a lot of product development as well. Well, I read her story on your, on the website and apparently, yeah, she was like, yeah, okay. Those are nice. But then she tried them right. and loved them. Right. As uh, Joe and I both mentioned in our previous podcast, once you go barefoot, it's very difficult to go back. And she yeah. went back to another shoe and said, oh, my my feet are screaming for those haracas or harache. Harache. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I mean, what happens is there's a big chunk of your brain that is wired to get information from the 200,000 nerve endings in your feet. And when it can't get that info, it literally changes shape and sort of shuts down. And when you start giving it that stimulation that it's looking for, it's just like, oh, my God. And when you get that stimulation, it's your brain then knows how to move your body correctly. It knows how to adjust to the terrain that you're on, what you're stepping on, what you're stepping in. And when you get used to that, it's just really... I mean, it's literally addictive because we are wired to look for how we step on things, basically to figure out if there's something good nearby, food, water, shelter. I don't know how knowing what you're stepping on is good for finding people to sleep with, but that was an evolutionary motivator. <laughs> so, But suffice it to say, this is what we are built to do. And when you get in the way of that with you know big, thick shoe with a whole bunch of padding that you can't feel anything through, that's a problem. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great segue. We're physical therapists, um, and I'm also schooled in nutrition. I know you were a pre-med, so the discussion that you're uh, when you're talking about those free nerve endings, you're not talking about free nerve endings in it by itself. You're talking about the Merkel cells, the Parsinian corpuscles, the Ruffini corpuscles, the muscle spindles, Golgi tendon organs, and a number of other receptors that provide kinesthetic awareness. It's not uh, we talk about proprioception a lot, and that's great. But one thing that I want to be quick to point out uh, and your um, other podcast, you've brought this up and you've talked about this uh, uh, a lot, is that when you develop calluses, you actually become more sensitive to the kinesthetic feel, the feel of your body, not only in space, but the feel to like touch, the feel to pressure, the feel to quick stretch or prolonged stretch or pressure. But the cool thing is, those calluses dole your pain. They also, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of studies that have shown this, they, they increase your pain pressure threshold, which means they decrease the amount of pain that you feel if you were to step on something like a little pebble or on a stick. But they enrich, they enrich your feel to the movement in space. But, and I agree with all of that, but um, if you are a for lack of a better term, successful barefoot runner. And by the way, I'm not going to try and talk people into running barefoot. We can get into that. 
but um, it's a myth that you build calluses. So calluses are going to come from one of two things. It's either going to come from excessive horizontal force, which means you're either overstriding and pulling, you know, landing with your foot in front of you and putting on the brakes, which is going to create force, or you're pulling your foot underneath you, which will happen if you're overstriding, or you're pushing off the ground as well. Um, so instead of thinking about getting your foot off the ground by flexing your hip, by lifting your knee, if, it, if you want to think of it that way, um, not that you don't use your foot and ankle uh, and calf muscle, but the primary thing is really to kind of use the stretch and the hip flexor to release that, to think about getting your knee off the ground before your foot comes off the ground. Um, so the other thing that can cause calluses is heat. And so, but if you look at the feet of accomplished barefoot runners, we don't have calluses over time. The skin has thickened a little bit, not a whole lot. Um, but then again, we're not typically in the West, we're not on really, really abrasive surfaces in really, really uh, hot conditions for very often. And um, there's another piece that went along with that um, uh, skin thickening. Oh, but the biggest thing that from my experience, and I wish I had data to back this up, this is just completely N equals one anecdotal, my story. It seems like in addition to my feet having gotten much stronger from getting out of regular shoes, they become more flexible. So when I originally was stepping on things in my driveway that hurt, then I, later within about six months, I was stepping on them and my foot would just bend around them. I was also with better form. I wasn't weighting my, my landing foot too much. I wasn't just putting my foot down and kind of pogo sticking it on top of it. I'd be putting it down underneath my center of mass in such a way that I could get feedback before I put too much weight on that foot. And then the third thing that seemed to happen, I might've said two before, so I guess there's three. The third thing is it seems like my reflex arc improved. So if I started to step on something that was going to be unpleasant, I was off of it more quickly. So again, I have no evidence for that. That's just the way it feels with the way that I respond to the ground now compared to what I did when I started doing this, you know, 15 years ago or 16 years well, ago. And in, in, in the physical therapy, in the medical world or engineering world, those forces you're talking about is called shear and torsion, uh, shear force, torsion forces of landing and pulling. And you don't want to pull with your feet. And that's the difference. If you start running barefoot, you learn not to pull. And right. I want to go into that a little bit because there's some conditions, a new condition that's relatively uh, been discovered or discussed within the medical community that you see a lot of athletes deal with in hamstring syndrome. But coming back to what you're talking about, there are um, studies that have looked at ground reaction forces. They've looked at the biomechanics of the foot where you can draw that indirect uh, perspective of increased flexibility. One of the things I was talking with Joe earlier about was that if you are landing with the heel and pulling with the heel, you are using different musculature. But when you look at the talus, and I, uh, I have a model here, so let me show you. Oh, mine's in the other room. <laughs> if, we took, if you we took are- several a lot of time to set up our models and shoes and everything. I like what you have going on over there. You've got everything behind you. You've got your other, your big cushion shoe right next to you. Um, oh, yeah. But I was, I was, had this terror. I came home looking for this, this foot model, but we were able to bring one. So, yeah. So if you are landing on the heel, you're getting a piston effect through this joint here. This is the talus. This is the tibia. And you're literally getting a piston effect. So you're going to have increased, what we call increased ground reaction force. It just means increased actually, force and energy absorbed through the joint. To be, to be clear, it's actually not increased. If you look, if you look at, the, uh, at the force plate data, what happens is that um, 
there's two ways of putting it. So the maximum ground reaction force you're getting is basically the same if you're over if you're landing on your heel or not, because that's going to peak at mid stance. What happens is you get what um, Harvard's Daniel Lieberman calls an impact transient force spike. So when you're landing on that part of your calcaneus, basically sort of the back part, the proximal part, um, then it is doing exactly what you say. So what you see is an initial spike before the kind of normal bell curve that you would find if you're running barefoot. And the the interesting argument in the literature um, is some people say, well, that spike isn't doesn't matter. And what Irene Davis, um, who was the leader, who is one of the leading researchers on minimalist footwear, says it's not that the spike is happening; it's the fact that it's so fast and so short, you literally can't respond to it. So that spike of force is going straight into the tibia, and then it's going to land at whatever the weakest joint is upstream, in, when in your patella, in your hip, in your back, somewhere. So that's the part that. When you look at someone running barefoot and landing either midfoot or forefoot, um, that initial impact transient disappears. But the maximum amount of force, that's just a function of gravity in your mass. You can't change well, that. And, and that's correct. That's absolutely correct. You're talking about stress allocation. That's where I'm going. Correct. So the yeah. ground reaction force. I'm sorry? No, no, I, I agree. Yeah. So the, the stress is basically allocated to the joint structures of the ankle you could argue of the knee as well as the hip and then also the lower back right. but when you're talking about running barefoot you learn quickly not to land on the heel as it's not well padded not compared to the midfoot and forefoot but you see these joints here and the tarsal is a metatarsal and the tarsal phalangeal and the phalangeal joints lift it up a little higher your your, your oh, off frame there you go they're condylar they're yeah. condylar, and what they do is they move up and down. And so they give you a springy foot. And when you're running, you're, you're literally flexing and extending them. And as you are walking barefoot or using your feet bare feet, uh, your bare feet, you're developing, you're stretching all the fascial components, the tendons, the ligaments, the muscles, the capsules. You're expressing the joint. Yep. Okay. And therefore, you do gain flexibility. But the important thing that we were going to go back to is that ground reaction force, that energy is dissipated through the spring-like nature of the foot, not through the rigid piston action of the ankle and the knee. That's my Correct. point. Well, it's, it's a combination of both, actually. So it starts with the foot, but then it goes upstream. The easiest example I like to give is if you stepped, if you stood up on a phone book, for anyone who remembers what a phone book is, uh, or anything, just, you know, like <laughs> literally two to three inches high, and you step off of it, um, you don't land with a straight leg. You land on your midfoot or the ball of your foot, and that's that's the first place that starts to mitigate that force. Partly how it mitigates the force, though, is not from being flexible. It's because when you're going to land and you have any sort of um, dorsiflexion in your toes, that's going to stress the or stretch appropriately the plantar fascia, and that's going to align all of the rest of those bones into your longitudinal, transverse, and whatever the hell the third arch is. So you're actually building something super strong. So that way, when you have that strong arch in your foot and you're putting that stress in a positive way on the plantar fascia, it's actually designed to handle that. And because the plantar fascia then connects um, proximally into the Achilles, that's also sending information into the um, uh, the posterior chain. And then you bend your knees and your hips and your ankle to actually mitigate the force entirely. So what happens when you land properly, you're using the entire musculature of the lower lower limb as a the spring-like mechanism that it's designed to be. So it's not just in the foot. And so like I, the example that I give, like stepping on the phone book, I go, step off of it with one foot, and then I want you to 
propel yourself forward after you land on the ground. And people land on the ball of their foot with the foot right underneath their center of mass. They bend their they bend their ankle, their knee, and their hip just enough, and then they spring off of it. And that's where you get the spring action in the foot and the Achilles. Um, and that's proper running form. But um, when you have a big thick shoe with a big thick heel, that gets a little it, well. It's a whole long story, but uh, I want to address one point that people will often make. When we have a conversation like this, they go, yeah, but when I'm walking, I'm supposed to land heel first, to which I say, maybe. Um, depends on if you're going uphill, downhill, fast, slow, what the terrain is. But even if you're on a flat surface and you're walking properly, and that I'm going to do the end result of this to say what proper is. Proper is using your glutes and hamstrings as hip extensors to as prime movers, which means that if you don't throw your your uh, um, swing leg in front of you, you'll land with it pretty much underneath your center of mass again. And so rather than landing on the backside of the calcaneus, if you will, you land sort of you know on the bottom of it. You roll over the bottom of your heel instead of – let's think of it. If you think of the back of your heel as 9 o'clock um, and the bottom of your heel at 6 o'clock, instead of landing at 9, you land on like 5.30 or 6.00. And and that's a whole different game than what most people think of when they're walking. David Sedaris, the writer, uh, is living in France, and he said his French friends accuse him of walking like an American. And he said, what does that mean? And they said, you throw your legs in front of you, which is you literally don't see that in the third world. You don't see that in places where they don't have indoor plumbing. You don't see that in places where they don't have big, thick shoes. And you also see that they have more developed glutes and hamstrings. And that's I've why heard, their footprint looks a bit different as well. Correct. Yeah, I've heard you mention that before. And even it's almost daily now I'm talking with patients today, earlier, I going back because everybody heard heel toe, heel toe. So everybody's really putting that heel out there. And I'm like, yeah, we've said that. I've said that years ago. And now we've got to reel it back in and say, okay, it's not the back of your heel, though. You right. do like like you said, you're coming closer to that, to the front of that heel and then rolling through the toes. Um, when you're walking, but when you're running, right. if you're landing under with your foot near your center of mass, not even necessarily under it, you just literally can't do that. And right. if you if you want to see something funny in the movie Air about the development of the Air Jordan shoe, um, there's three things that are funny. One is whenever Phil Knight is uh, not in a meeting, he's in bare feet which cracks me up. Two, when you see anybody running, they're all running with perfect running form, landing midfoot underneath their center of mass. They're not overstriding and heel striking like Nike would tell you is the way you're supposed to do it. And the third is when they hand Michael the first shoe they make, the first Air Jordan, they say something like, I'm paraphrasing, we know you like to be lower to the ground so we can shave this down some. So that first Air Jordan was practically a minimalist shoe. And now, you know, all hell has broken loose ever since. Well, and I just want to go back when we're talking about the spring. I'm not talking about just the spring of the foot, but what right. I want to mention, you've talked about this in some previous podcasts with some physicians that you were uh, discussing this topic with. We talk about the glutes. We, we tend to always segment musculature and the, the problem that we, uh, we have in medicine is that we're always thinking from an isolationist perspective, right? Right. The glutes, the, the back, your lats, your your rotator cuff, your quadriceps, your calf, they're going to work together. So yeah, Michael Johnson says it perfectly in his master class about sprinting. When he's running as a sprinter, he's trying to get maximum dorsiflexion, not by striking that heel, but as you said earlier, trying to get to that 530-ish 
so he can plant uh, dorsiflex. And the reason he wants to do this, and he says it, is because that's going to maximize the energy absorption of potential energy, of kinetic energy to potential energy, back to kinetic energy as right. he springs off the legs. Right. Right. Yeah, he's basically he's basically trying to preload, he's trying to preload the Achilles as much as possible. And now I will say, um, sprinters love to say that they uh, that it's all about dorsiflexion and you're landing with your toes pulled up and your foot you know pulled towards your knee. But you actually watch them in slow motion. It's not quite what's happening. It's not. I mean, it, it's certainly not. Um, I don't know how you're going to how you measure angles. It's not um, shallower than ninety degrees, but. Um, it, you're also just not pointing your toes. So it's if you watch slow motion of Usain Bolt, um, and there's a bunch of videos that are showing that, he's definitely not dorsiflexed in a way that you think. There's a place in the gait cycle and as a sprinter where that's typically the case, but it's reactive. Like once you're, when your foot is coming off the ground, there is sort of a natural uh, dorsiflexion as you're the swing, during the swing phase. But as you are extending the hamstring, as you're actually, as you're extending the knee, um, and trying to slow that down with the hamstring, that naturally lets your foot drop some, but not like you're pointing your toe. You have to watch it in slow motion. And what's really fun is if you watch the video of uh, Usain Bolt sprinting in slow motion, and you go, God, his form is amazing. And then you look at the other seven guys in that race, they look exactly the same. So it's there is a a normative, not pressure, but the better you get at something, the more similar you get to the other people who are really, really good at it, because there is an optimal way to move for high performance movements, whether it's running, gymnastics, ballet, diving, tennis, you know, you name it. But to your point, it's not about picking the toes up. It's right. about landing on the foot and about the about the midfoot midfootish. Right. The tibia is coming forward, translating forward, which yep. means it's flexing a little bit. So now they have more of a push through the quadriceps. The yep. leg is in, for, in front of them, so now there's a bigger push with the glutes. And and Michael Johnson, like I said, he equates it to like doing a leg press. So instead of doing a pull, it's a push. Okay, right. and right. that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, your your glutes and hamstrings are in the weakest point when your foot is landing in front of your body. They're meant to be extensors, not whatever the hell the opposite thing of that is for pulling. I mean, you can get strength that way, but it's slower. Um, and for sprinting in particular, it's just completely inefficient. That, that if, you, if you're landing with your front or foot in front of you, you're just spending too much time on the ground. And sprinting is all about being in the air. That's right. Uh, and I'll come back to another point. We've had a patient who we've seen a number of patients who are distance runners and they come in with this, I can't sit down. I have pain here. It's sitting down is like the classic flag with this new diagnosis of what's called hamstring syndrome. Are you familiar with that? No, I can't wait to hear. Okay. Hamstring syndrome syndrome is a subtype of sciatica. Okay. Basically, the sciatic nerve comes out of the, uh, the back. It goes through the piriformis, under the piriformis, and around the ischial tuberosity underneath the hamstrings. Why? Those Because the musculature, and this is where developing musculature is really important is it protects certain structures in this point the neural structure so it's protected anteriorly by the femur and posteriorly by the musculature okay however if you run with really big heels yeah and you're pulling as opposed to pushing you may what you're doing is if you you've changed the uh the activation and utilization of certain musculature. In this case, you're going to pull with your hamstring until you strained or 
injured your hamstring. Strain is the same thing as a tear, legit, uh, literally, but it's a spectrum. If you tear the hamstring, the hamstring has that fascial tunnel that allows the sciatic nerve to go through. It will collapse, and it can kind of get tethered. Somebody would say tethered, or it can develop adhesions to the sciatic nerve. And now you have a sciatica-like pain with a hamstring tear. And this is why you see this in a lot of like great athletes. And then they have a chronic hamstring injury, and you don't want to stretch them right away. What you want to do is fix their mechanics because it's one of those things that can continue to come back. You fix their mechanics. You try to alleviate, you try to help with tissue healing and you try to alleviate the tethering or the adhesions of the hamstring to the, to the uh, nerve. But if you don't fix their, their mechanics, now they're, they're in line for chronic problems. And the mechanics thing is interesting because, um, in order to fix someone's mechanics, you've got to make sure they're firing the right things in the right way. And this is my lead into, I don't know how much you see this, but when I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, when he was at um, uh, Colorado Mesa University, formerly part of the U.S. Olympic Committee, what he saw with um, high-level athletes of all sorts, especially and including runners, distance runners, sprinters, didn't matter, um, they, the distance runners tended to have weak glutes across the board, like glute maximus, glute medius, like weak as shit. Sprinters often were weak in the glute medius. Um, but it was, a, it's amazing to see these distance runners who've never been, who've never fired their glutes at all. So Irene Davis, um, by the way, she's not too far from you. She's at USF now. Uh, Irene, when she gets people in the lab, the first thing she does is take them out of their regular shoes. The second thing she does is stick their her fingers like on their glutes and say, you know, can you feel that and squeeze that so that it's getting tight and my fingers can't dig into your glutes. And most of them cannot do it. And of course, if they're not able to use their glutes, part of the form problem, um, and it's a push me pull you. I don't know which came first, but part of the problem there is then they end up, you know, internally rotating their femur. They got vastus valgus, and then usually they compensate by somehow externally rotating from the tibia. I mean, I it, it makes no sense to me how you can rotate your knee in and foot out, but I see it. In fact, I saw the most extreme example of this ever. It was fascinating. Woman runs by me in my neighborhood and she's a little overweight. And as she got by me, I saw her left leg was tracking perfectly. Knee was straight, foot was straight, everything was great. And her right leg was doing what I described, internally rotating the femur, externally rotating the tibia and the ankle. And she had no glute on her right side. Like that left side was poking out because again, she was a little overweight, right side flat as a pancake. And I'd never seen anything like that. So part of the uh, getting people to run with proper form is getting them to learn to activate muscles that they have turned off from having improper form. I think the, the thing we have to be cautious, though, is that we do always point to activation of tissue. We use diagnostic processes of palpation, yeah. um, sometimes surface electrode uh, uh, EMG, which isn't that great diagnostically. But I will tell you... I'm sorry. I said, but it's fun when you. I mean, I was doing EMG stuff, you know, 50 years ago. Um, when you, holy shit, that's true. Um, I just realized how old I am. Um, the, uh, uh, but it is interesting for people for the first time when you say flex this thing and the EMG is like not registering anything, and they're like, what? Sure. And and so originally, when you talk about like uh, patellofemoral pain, right? Yeah. The this researcher Powers out of USC. He was the first one that did a landmark study to see exactly what you're talking about. When the foot's connected to the ground and they're squatting, you have internal uh, rotation and adduction of the femur. 
underneath the, the kneecap, the patella, making it look like the patella was dislocated. But the problem was at the hip. Right. All right. And then we fast forward about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there was a study, a multi-center study uh, across the, the world, actually, where they enrolled about one to 2,000 subjects. They took individuals that had um, what's known as uh, active hip abduction uh, activation issues, which is this is termed by uh, Shirley Sarman out of Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. And what they did was they wanted to understand why these people with back pain and hip pain, why do they have this abnormal activation pattern? Or as you said before, weak glutes, weak glute med, med, uh, max, and then uh, uh, prominent hamstrings. And what they found was, well, they did it a number of different ways. They took measurements using flock of birds, which is a way to digitize one skeleton and look at their biomechanical movements. They then used fine wire EMG, and then they used a video fluoroscopy. And what they did was they saw that they all had something in common. It was an exaggerated heel-to-toe uh, <laughs> mechanics. Brilliant. And people that did not have these issues uh, were able to strike at the midfoot. They're not running or walking on their toes. They're striking at the midfoot, dorsiflexing, and pushing off and progressing. So then part of this study, and this is really important, they tried to figure out how do we change the activation pattern of dorsiflexors, hamstrings, uh, and hip flexors versus ca uh, calves, quadriceps, glutes, and then invariably the, also the posterior chain of the core. Right. They uh, tried a number of different techniques. Nothing really worked. So one thing they finally did was they said, let's walk barefoot. They had them walk barefoot. Yeah. And when they walked barefoot, they could not stride on their heel because it's, it's not comfortable. That's you lose your balance. It's inefficient. So they were. They became. They they started doing exactly what the people. Oh wait! Oh wait! 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 You froze for a second. You said when they switched to um, being barefoot, they couldn't walk on. The, they couldn't land on the heel first because. And then you froze for a second. Well, anybody who's tried walking barefoot, they they realize how uncomfortable it is to walk on the heel and pull through the heel. And so the moment that they they was they felt that stress, they went to midfoot. They shift the midfoot. They dorsiflex. Maybe not as much as the uh, uh, the controlled group. But they normalized their mechanics. And the moment they did that, just, just by taking their shoes off and walking, they saw an increase in activation of the calves, the gastroc soleus, the whole posterior uh, uh, leg. They increased activation of the quadriceps, immunization, increased activation of the glutes, all of the glutes, and increased activation of the posterior chain of the back. So I bring this up to basically uh, validate what you're saying earlier but i also wanted to uh, listen to your podcast with a physician a couple podcasts ago and we're talking about movement patterns and how to improve movement patterns and how to improve activation and you can certainly cross train to do that but you don't have to go out of your way and do these weird ridiculous non-functional exercises where they're trying to activate you can just get them just just change their environment maybe and they'll move a little bit better what do you say to that well, I, to I totally agree, and here's a variation of that. So there's a researcher out of um, uh, Canada named Benno Nig, and Benno has been misrepresented by every major footwear brand um, so they can justify complete bullshit. And what I mean specifically is Benno says everyone has a preferred movement pattern that is the lowest amount of energy you need to use to do whatever that movement is. Now, first of all, he's mistaken in that that movement pattern is 
uh, engendered by whatever footwear you start wearing, frankly, when you're a kid. So you develop, it becomes more efficient for you because you develop a movement pattern based on your environment, the shoe you're wearing. Um, and the way the big shoe companies have used this is to say, oh, he, he says that um, you basically don't want to artificially try to change this. Now, this came from his own experience where he was working with some coach who tried to get him to move differently, and then he got injured, and he came to the conclusion it was from learning how to move differently instead of whatever the hell else it could have been. It could have been a myriad of things. But uh, you know, I immediately said um, that whole philosophy is bullshit because um, there's no preferred movement pattern if you're a gymnast. You don't have a preferred movement pattern for a double-twisting, double-backflip until you learn to do a double twisting, double backflip. And along the way, you will like, you know, creeble out and fall on your face hundreds of times till you figure it out. So now that said, it is interesting when you watch gymnasts over time. Um, uh, it was fun. My best friend, his dad took eight millimeter film of us from the day we started in junior high school to the day we graduated high school. And we fundamentally each moved the same way we did from day one to day, whatever at the end, but we got more refined. You could still identify us by the way we lifted our arm, but everything got more refined. So we did have a preferred movement pattern-ish. But anyway, the way the big shoe companies have um, misinterpreted what Benno said is they say, oh, you have a preferred movement pattern. You can't change it. And we need to make something individually for you, you special little snowflake. And Benno says, no, that's completely not what I'm saying. Um, and in fact, I said to him, so you're telling me that if someone went barefoot, their movement pattern wouldn't change. He goes, oh, no, no, it absolutely would because of the different feedback. And so, um, but he says, but the issue with shoes is all the running shoes people are wearing are fundamentally the same. So you don't want to artificially change things because you're already in the thing that led to that initial efficient movement pattern to begin with, more energy, uh, whatever though, how I want to say it, less energy expenditure in that movement pattern to begin with. But he overlooks that you develop that because of a compensation to the environment you're in to begin with. So um, I, uh, my favorite version of this actually is, I'm going to take it slightly out of context, is there's research that comes out every few years where someone has taken a vibrating something, vibrating insole, vibrating ankle cuff, puts it on the feet of people who are either elderly and having mobility issues or have Parkinson's and have mobility issues, and they turn on the vibrator and everything gets you know much better instantly. And I wrote a blog post saying, you don't need the magic vibrating insoles. Take off your shoes, go for a walk outside, preferably on a mildly uncomfortable surface. And we had a guy who reached out to us uh, who was 82 years old who said, I was looking for the magic vibrating insoles and I couldn't find those, but I found your blog post. So I thought I'd put your theory to the test. And that was two weeks ago and I just threw away my walker. So um, same thing, we have Parkinson's patients who say they're moving better when they get out of their big, thick shoes. So the environment is simple. Get out of something that makes it so you can't feel, mess with your posture with an elevated heel, makes it so you can't move with a stiff sole, um, squeezes your toes together for reasons that I have no explanation for. You know, all we're doing at Zero Shoes is getting out of the way of the thing that caused the problem to begin with. And this is the joke. I've been playing with how I want to say this lately. It's like, if you have a problem and you want to cure it, first see if you can stop doing the thing that caused it. And most people just don't know what that is and they don't realize that it's being in a shoe that alters your environment, to your point, no matter what you're actually walking on or in. No, that, and that actually leads right into one of the things that I wanted to ask you. And I, I'll share also that I had, I've been working with a 
Parkinson's patient the last set a couple out month and a half or so. And I got really excited because I, I, I had him take his shoes off one day. I'm watching his feet just fail in his, he was wearing sandals, but just fail in these big, thick, rigid sandals. I'm like, yeah. let's take your shoes off and let you feel the ground let you move around. He came in the next time uh, or two visits later, he goes, are we going to take my shoes off again? I, I want to take my shoes off again. I'm like, yes, yes, let's take them off. So uh, I've been having a lot more people just take their shoes off and let them feel what they're doing as they're doing it without the shoes on. And it's, and it's great. I have, I have um, but a, that would pardon me really good to interrupt um, for a second. I have a theory about the thing with Parkinson's patients. This could be not true. It would be easy to test in an fMRI, but I have a theory that again, if you don't let your feet feel things, if you don't let those nerves do their job of sending information to your brain and your brain does change its shape and basically turn off and say, Oh, I'm, you're not going to give me the info. I'm not going to waste energy looking for it. If you then start stimulating those nerves and therefore that's part of your brain again, um, that stimulation has a dopaminergic effect. It feels good. We have the we get the learning. Some people argue that dopamine is about pleasure. Some people argue it's about learning. I don't really care. Um, both of those apply to this. If you learn barefoot feels good and it feels good, uh, then you're releasing some dopamine. And that's I don't think that's you know completely localized in that one part of your brain and it would be actually on both hemispheres right foot left foot so i have a th i think that part of the impact that people have the beneficial impact that people have if they have parkinson's when they get out of their shoes is literally from the mild increase in dopamine which is of course part of the problem with parkinson's that's a very interesting theory and thought yeah uh, it's a theory it's just a theory at this point Stephen, have you ever heard of osteokines myokines and neurokines Yes, but hold on. Didn't was there a question that I interrupted? I don't think so. There, no, I was I was going to ask because um, we were talking about. Uh, I, I'm just convincing people or showing people that listen, your shoes that you've been wearing for all of this time, and looking also at our our profession, even the physical therapists that are still wearing. Hoka's and different supported and inserts and recommending these to people. And I'm thinking, why, like, what is taking so long to catch up or what is taking, like, where are you missing this thought, it, this input? Yeah, it's, it's, it, the why is really stupidly simple. Um, companies with huge amounts of money have been convincing us of things that are bullshit with two, uh, two methods. One is just misusing and misrepresenting physics. So, hey, um, you know, we took uh, this two pound steel ball and we're bouncing it off of different kinds of foam that are in your shoe and let's see which one's better. And they show, you know, you bounce it off concrete, it doesn't bounce. You bounce it off, quote, the other company's foam. No one ever uses that foam. It barely bounces. You bounce it off their new magic foam and it bounces like 10 times. Well, um, if you understand physics, you know that if you really want to get a ball to bounce, you take that steel ball, you bounce it off a steel plate with concrete underneath it, and the first bounce is not going to be you know, 30% of the height you dropped it from like their demo. It'll be 99% of the height you dropped it from, and it'll bounce like 200 times. There's an exhibit at the Exploratorium Museum in San Francisco where they do this. So they misuse physics. They call things – they use terms like energy return. There's no foam that has energy return. All foam sucks energy out of the system. I've got a video of a quote from a guy from Adidas saying energy return is a lie. There's just energy loss. And then he says we try to have you know less energy loss. But the issue with energy loss and foam is 
all foam is basically tuned to a weight and speed. If you're not that weight running at that speed or walking at that speed, it's really bad for you. Um, the, ener the, the improved energy loss is in a very narrow band of weight and speed. But anyway, so they use bad physics combined with um, a extrapolation from something that is an experience that you have where you can extrapolate and it makes sense. Well, cushioning feels good, right? Well, yeah, if I sit on a cushion, if I lie down on a cushion, the right cushion, that feels good. Well, don't you need cushioning for your feet? Yeah, I guess I do. Wouldn't that be great? So they build in cushioning for their feet. Um, uh, or it's like, you know, your feet hurt at the end of the day. Well, clearly it's because, you know, your arches just can't support you. You need arch support because you know that when you support something, it feels better. Yeah, because you're not using it. So they use like the simplest stories to convince people of things that are just patently false. And then they use one third thing, actually. I guess I'm good at saying here's two things and then thinking of a third. The third <laughs> is, the third is, hey, don't you want to be like this guy? And so they get some famous athlete and they make it it's like, don't you want to be like this guy? And when people um, say to me, well, I bought this shoe because this famous marathoner uh, won a race in that shoe, I go, I don't want to be the one to point this out to you, but that guy is a five foot two, 105 pound Kenyan who's being paid to wear those shoes. You're a 256 pound guy who runs one quarter of the speed that he does. And by the way, the shoe that he's wearing, not the shoe that you just bought. They made it special for him. So, you know, they just use all this brilliant marketing over the last 50 years. And that's the important part, too. It's now been two generations of convincing people that what they're doing is correct and everything else you think is wrong. I mean, the fundamental premise that they're telling you is feet are inherently dysfunctional and we're correcting them. But here's the part that blows me away and gets me out of bed in the morning because it makes me so, you have to pardon me, um, it's a Friday where I can't edit, it makes me so fucking angry because I hate when people lie to people to make money. And here's the lie. I'll say it this way. I got into an argument with a guy in, in YouTube comments who accused me of knowing nothing, which I thought was pretty entertaining. Um, and, uh, and then, but he said, you know, um, well, you know, the big shoe companies, if, if this was real, they'd be doing it. I said, well, first of all, um, we've had people who are C-level people, executives of these companies say, what you're doing is legit. But if we did it, it would be admitting we've been lying for 50 years. They said that directly. The second thing is, well, then if these companies are so smart with their billion-dollar R&D budget, explain this. Go to the Nike website. You can look this up. They posted a portion of an abstract from research that never got published for a very specific reason. But what they published, amazingly, is the results of a study where they took their best-selling running shoe and compared it to a new shoe they developed. And the way it got publicized in thousands of newspapers and tens of thousands of websites was new Nike shoe reduced injury by 52%. Well, it did. But then you look at the numbers. In a 12-week study in a half-marathon training program that Nike designed, where they call an injury anything that keeps you out for at least three training sessions in a row, they didn't say what the average was. Could have been five, 10, who knows, but at least three. Their best-selling running shoe injured over 30% of the people wearing it in less than 12 weeks. And the new shoe, 52% better, only 14.8 got injured in 12 weeks. If we injured 14.5 to 30% of the people wearing our shoes in under 12 weeks, we'd be out of business and I would be in jail. But most importantly, that injury rate, which by the way, doesn't stay consistent after 12 weeks, that's the best you can do 
after 50 years of R&D, that is morally reprehensible. And all the other shoe companies know better. So where's the proof that all the things they've been convincing us of for 50 years is in any way true? There is none. But they have convinced you that they make really good shoes. And if you have problems, it's because of you. That's right. And and you just make your I'm getting more cynical as time goes by. The corporate corruption. No, no, no. no you're not cynical. You know the truth. Yeah, These companies like know this. This is not a mystery to them. I mean, look, here's the question about the Nike study. If that new shoe reduced injuries by so much, why are you still selling the other shittier shoe? I mean, why aren't you making every shoe like that? And they can't because you know why they, what they did to make it better? They got rid of, quote, many of the protective features. Yeah. And, and but in, the end, in the end, Stephen, you have the evidence, not just from physics, but you have the evidence from biomechanics. You have the evidence from the right. anatomy, physiology, metabolism. You Doesn't have matter. evidence. But in the end, you're right. Absolutely. In the end, you don't have the billions and billions of dollars at night. No, no, no. It it doesn't matter for a different reason. It doesn't matter because now after 50 years, people believe that they have problems with their feet that need to be supported, whether they have high arches or low arches, they need arch support, whether if they're running or walking, they need all that cushioning and padding. They believe these things because they've been told this and because some of it makes, quote, intuitive sense, even though it's not technically true. And the problem is when someone believes something, it's very, very, very difficult to get them to disbelieve it or unbelieve it. You can't just say, here's contradictory evidence because that doesn't work. That makes human beings hold on even tighter because from an evolutionary psychology perspective, generating life-saving beliefs is important. Changing them is not. And people think of these as life-saving beliefs. So the only way that I have found to do it is basically getting people into a state of cognitive dissonance. And there's two ways you do that. One is by just giving them the, and I don't, I promise there's not a third. I just said there's two. There's only <laughs> One is that you give them the experience. They put on a pair of shoes like ours and they go, oh my God, we had some NBA guys in here yesterday. And one of the NBA trainers who's been a basketball player for 40 plus years puts on our shoe and literally went, oh my, I've been wrong for 40 years. I mean, that was the first thing he said. He says, I can feel my whole foot on the ground functioning and I can spread my toes. Oh my, what have I been doing? I mean, that's literally what he said. So the experience was so profound in contradicting what he believed for 40 years, he couldn't hold on to that belief any longer. In lieu of the experience, the only thing that I have found that works is getting people to just think about things that make sense that then contradict what they believe and what they've been experiencing. For example, if I say, is weaker better than stronger? People go, no. I go, well, how do you make something stronger? Like if you wanted to make your bicep stronger, what do you do? They go, I, you know, do bicep curls. Right. If you wanted to make your bicep weaker, what do you do? They go, well, don't use it. Yeah, put it in a cast, put it in a sling. It gets weaker in just a matter of weeks. So you have 110 muscles, ligaments, and tendons in your feet. If you want to make them stronger, what do you do? They go, I don't know, like use it or something. Yeah, what do you do to make it weaker? not use it right so here's a normal shoe it doesn't let your foot move what's it doing to your foot and they go oh i go so what what happened do you imagine if your foot gets weaker from not using it and then they they tell you all the problems they've already been having you know i say 
You have 200,000 nerve endings in the soles of your feet. Why would you need those more than anywhere but your fingertips and lips? They go, well, you know, nerves are for feeling things. Cool. Why do you need to feel things? Well, I guess to know how to move properly. Great. How much can you feel through all that foam? Oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Cool. So your body is properly aligned if you just stand in bare feet. What happens if you, you know, like lean forward a little bit? Uh, how do you stay balanced? Oh, I have to like arch my back or bend my knees or something. Cool. Well, that's just what happens when you raise your heel in a big thick shoe with an elevated heel. So where do you think the stress is going? Oh, right. And they just point to the joints that already hurt. So getting people to, I mean, the biggest thing, frankly, is the experience part. And if we had enough money, that goes back to your point. Oh, crap. I had a third. If we had, <laughs> this is a corollary. It doesn't count. This is, two, this is one A. If we had enough money, to just get enough shoes on enough people's feet, then we could change the tide. And in terms of changing the tide, the magic number is getting 25% of any subpopulation to have the new experience. Once it hits 25% within a smaller group, we can't just say all Americans, um, but like, you know, at a, at a running club at some running store in Fayetteville, Arkansas or wherever, then things change. Not everybody, but, pr you know, the majority. And so this is our goal is to find ways of giving the most people the experience to build up to that 25% mark as quickly as we can. Because um, not that we want to be the only company doing this, but we don't. We want every company doing this. We're trying to change the world, not by being you know, the top of the heap or the only company doing it, just by changing the world. Um, so you know, we want to just find ways of giving people the experience. And it's one reason we're looking to raise additional capital now is because there's ideas that I have that are $10, 20000000 million ideas that we know would be beneficial to business and to people who are trying to have a happier, healthier life. But right now, we don't have 10 or $20 million to blow. No, but at the same time, Joe and I at work, we see these patients. I'll give you an example. We had a, a gentleman, young guy in his 30s, runner, comes in chronic hamstring issues, seeing a bunch of different therapists, couldn't resolve the issue, had to sit down, talk with them, say when he saw us, hey, listen, it's called hamstring syndrome, and this is what needs to be done. Don't see him for a little while. A year, two years later, he comes in. Yeah, you know, when you told me about that, I just took my shoes off and I ran, ran barefoot, and I haven't had the problem since, and I felt great. So one patient at a time, yeah, they were experiencing that. Yeah, I don't have that kind of time. So um, I have, I have a well, joke. Um, my, my joke, uh, I got a call from this, this guy who's an agent to a bunch of professional athletes. He said, what's going on? My athletes are all calling me telling that they called you to, you know, to talk about your shoes. And so, oh, it's because my entire marketing plan is just getting all of your 25 athletes. Um, and, uh, uh, or I get people who, marketing people who will call me to pitch something to help us sell more shoes. And invariably, by the end of the conversation, they buy a pair and then call me and go, oh, my God, these changed my life. I went, yeah, that's my whole plan. It's just to get people who are doing internet marketing to switch to our shoes. But, um, but the one patient at a time thing, this actually is a big part of what we're trying to um, amplify is getting to people like you guys who have seen the light, who are working with patients and clients 
and who have the kind of influence because they respect you appropriately. Um, and that's how things start to really spread. Uh, and there's nothing you would that you as a practitioner, this is going to sound ironic, would want more than someone who comes to you for one session, goes home, takes off their shoes, finds that everything's fine, and then will be talking about you to everyone they ever meet from that day forward who has a similar problem to what they first presented. Stephen, I just thought of a challenge. We could maybe do this on TikTok or, or make it a, a podcast challenge. What I would challenge people to do, uh, and they may hate it, but put on a very stiff, high top shoe, tie it tight, or maybe even a cast. Anybody that's ever worn a boot on their foot and ankle, they hate it within a day. They want to take it off, get rid of it. And to your point of strengthening your feet, it's not just losing or getting a weaker foot or an insensitive foot, but they also have an increased risk for fracture because they have depression and osteokines. They get decreased neural input because of depression right. and neurokines, a loss of muscle mass because of myokines. But here's the other thing that we don't talk about a lot. We need to. We talk about this all the time. They also lose the mobility of their foot. The joints are not being expressed. They become a little bit stiffer, becomes dehydrated, and then the myofascial tissue also becomes stiffer, meaning that it's more brittle and vulnerable to injury. So wear a cast, and then when it when it sucks and you can't take it any longer, go barefoot. And then if you see a difference, and prom, I promise you, you will. When you go barefoot, you do not want to go go back. You put yeah. on zero shoes, you are not going back to other shoes. We're, That's the problem. We're doing we're doing something on TikTok now. Um, it's a multi phase street interview campaign. So the first phase is just getting some traffic and getting people to pay attention to the channel. And the way we do that is the street interviewers coming up to people and saying, hey, trivia question for $500, how many bones in the human body? Or how many bones in the foot and ankle? Or how many bones in the skull? Or how many muscles in, you know, just like, just flat out trivia. The second version is going to be uh, walking up to people and looking at their shoe with the pointy toe box and saying, hey, here's a weird question. Is that the shape of your foot? It's like, what? Take off that shoe and let's take a look at the shoe compared to your foot. And they're going to go, oh, that, that doesn't make sense. If you're trying to shove your foot into something that squeezes your toes together, what problems might that create? And then they'll tell you all the problems. That's phase two. And then, of course, we end it with, you know, try something that doesn't squeeze your foot together. The third version is they take off their shoe and then we have them put on a pair of zero shoes and just walk around and capture their experience. The fourth version is we, after that, we capture them when they put their regular shoes back on. And, they, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, these feel horrible now. And then the last version, we take some people and say, if you're willing to throw away the shoes that you walked over here in, in exchange for the ones that you're wearing, I'll let you keep them. And then we just watch people go to the trash and throw their old shoes away. And um, we're hoping that we you know, get some real traction with that whole campaign because it's super fun. And it's literally just capturing in real time the things that we see all day, every day when people come to our store. Give us the link and I'll put it on our uh, webpage and our uh, podcast. I will do that. You'll see it's a it's a new page. If I'm not mistaken, it's just TikTok.com um, uh, uh, at zero dot shoes instead of just zero shoes. So we're doing this on a separate channel for now because um, TikTok doesn't like when brands do certain kinds of things. They like it when it's individuals. So don't tell TikTok that's you know, no. Possible. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that takes me to another question. Um, I have two children. I have one child who has a disability. 
Uh, and I've been a, a fervent advocate for them to be barefoot as children. But the problem that I've, I run into when I'm looking for shoes, because they have to wear shoes to go to school, that's, uh, I don't know if it's illegal, but it's certainly frowned upon. Um, but my, I have a very difficult time finding the zero drop shoes, the wide box. Right. The, I want them to have zero shoes, but they're not, you haven't, you've just started making kids shoes. Are you going to expand that line? And then the other, the other part of that question, uh, Stephen, is I've heard you talk about sports shoes and you're absolutely right. The soccer shoes are too narrow. They squeeze the feet. Um, when you're talking about basketball shoes, the heels are too big. When you're talking about even like hockey, I know you're talking about hockey shoes. They're a little bit more rigid because of the blade. Are you going to go into some like the sport shoes at all? So for kids, the answer is yes, we're going down into smaller sizes and we're trying to figure out, I mean, the umbrella comment for this is we're not a massive company with huge amounts of money behind us. So we can't do everything we want as fast as we want. And by we, I mean me. Um, uh, some people want us to, you know, kind of go in a graduated timely manner. That's not the way my brain works. I just want to do everything all at once. So, um, but we are working on it. The, the challenge to be candid is that making kids shoes costs almost as much as making shoes for adults, but you can't sell them for the same price. So, um, and I don't want to have an $80 shoe for kids. that's only bought by rich white people. No offense, rich white people. And um, uh, so we're, we're working on that problem. In fact, we're going to meet with some factories next week to discuss that some more. There are a couple of companies that are making uh, decent shoes for young kids. They're not, uh, they're not really attractive, frankly. Um, but at least, you know, they're doing the right job. And to highlight the importance for this, Dr. Irene Davis said to me one day, if we just got kids wearing your shoes in 20 years, we wouldn't be treating adults for the billions of dollars of lower extremity problems that they currently have. And I, I see that. I totally agree. So that's that part on the sports side. The simplest answer I can give you is yes. And I can't say much more than that. I will tell you one story though, from, uh, a Olympic hockey player we're not going to be making hockey skates. That's a whole crazy thing. But this player said, um, I've been wearing your shoes as soon as I get off the ice and I'm skating better as a result because my feet get weak when I'm in a boot where I can't move it. And if I just stayed in something that doesn't let my foot move, that just gets progressively worse. But what's happened since I've been wearing your stuff off the ice, I'm accelerating better. I'm jumping better and uh, I'm just have more control. And that's in no way surprising. So, and we've heard that with other sports as well. My favorite thing, actually, we have a number of professional golfers who love our shoes. They're not wearing them when they're playing. They wear them when they practice because they're sponsored by big shoe companies. Uh, but my favorite part is that each of these five golfers raves about a different one of our shoes. And for opposite reasons, one likes this shoe gives me great grip. One's like this shoe. I love it because it lets me pivot really well. So it's, there's an individual preference for how you like to do your high level sport. And to be totally candid right now, the only sport that actually drives cultural change basketball. Yeah, I can completely see that. Um, but I do think that if we're looking to make a change and get past those big companies with billions of dollars, I think it starts with children. I've um, looked for shoes and it's, yeah, it's, go ahead. It's both directions. I mean, you, you can't, you, you from what I'm, the way I'm looking at it, it's, it's bottom up and top down. You got to kind of do them both. The kids thing, I'll tell you what's fun about kids. Um, 
It's an easy story to say to parents, you don't want your kids to grow up with messed up feet by squeezing them into something that changes the shape of their foot. And if once they buy that for their kids, even if they haven't believed it or bought into it for themselves, it makes them open to the possibility and then they get on board and away we go. Um, of course, it's easy to do it the other way around. The parents who've already understood the value of natural movement, they're looking for stuff for their kids and that's why we're trying to do that. Um, the top-down thing is fun because if we do it right, then people aren't even paying attention to the whole natural movement thing. That's not the story they really care about. They just want to be like that guy. And then it's kind of a Trojan horse that suddenly they realize they can't wear their old shoes that squeeze their toes together and mess with their posture, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just find that from my experience, it's very difficult to find zero drop wide toe box yeah, right. shoes for children. Working on it. But I'd also say that if they experience that, and then they go and put on a Nike or an Adidas. They're like, what the hell is this? Except um, that's true until they become teenagers. So yeah. the, thing, the thing that we see is once they get to a certain age, and actually it usually starts around eight or nine, but definitely kicks in around 13, 14, is they want to do what all their friends are doing. They don't want to be, unless they like being weird, uh, they don't like being weird. And so that's where that critical mass thing comes into play. And arguably, there's ways that we want to mm, push the envelope on that by doing things like, you know, again, that top down thing. If we have pro players in some sport, basketball, football, soccer, whatever, who are saying, oh my God, these things are great, that makes it more likely that we can get kids in a junior high or high school sports program to get the whole team or the majority of the team wearing our shoes. And then that spreads throughout the school. So that's another way of doing that. These are all things that are on my to-do list. And again, one of the reasons we're trying to raise capital, because to do this well takes more people, manpower, and uh, skill than you know what we currently have on staff. Well, if you do anything with soccer or baseball, let me know. So that way, you know, I'll just get the team, my son's teams taken care of. For, yeah. um, for baseball, we have guys on the Dodgers pitching staff who train in our um, our speed force, our most barefoot shoe. That's what they – because they can't play in it, but that's the thing they train in because it gives them just better force off the ground, better feeling through the whole pitching movement. Absolutely. I could see the hip drive in that already. Do you think that um, for those that are, have diabetes or any form of neuropathy that we're missing the mark with barefoot shoes as well? Yep. Um, is the simple answer. And so, again – two parts to this. Um, part one is simply that what we've heard anecdotally again is that just by letting your toes spread um, and having more motion, that's improving circulation. And also just getting those that stimulation from your foot is helping both with circulation um, and uh, a neural response, which is really important if you have something like diabetic neuropathy. The second thing is there's research showing uh, from, there was actually a group in Australia that did this uh, four or five years ago, they had a um, paper they presented right across from me at the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics Summit. Um, but there's also a orthopedic or surgical podiatrist named Emily Splickle, who has a company called Naboso, N-A-B-O-S-O. And Emily developed a very similar product, which basically just has these little pyramidal points in an insole that are designed to stimulate the mechanoreceptors in your foot and both improve circulation and neural functioning. Um, uh, as well as just, you know, the mechanical functioning. When she first developed this product, she called me and said, I'd like you to try it out. And I was 
I was pretty much ready to, you know, get it, hold on to it for a week, then pat her on the head and go, you know, thanks. It didn't really do anything because I've tried all those appropriate stimulating insoles. They never did anything for me. Uh, and so I got these things and we resell them on our website, put them in my shoes, walked around for about an hour, kicked off my shoes at the office as I tend to do. But when I stood up about an hour later to walk to the other side of the office, my feet were grabbing the ground and my calves were like, holy lot. I mean, they were move. I mean, I've never felt that kind of pre-potentiation before. It was amazing. Now, you do acclimate to that, but that's good. You've acclimated to something that's actually making things work better. In the paper that they were presenting at the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics Summit, it was specifically about using that product or product like that for people with diabetic neuropathy. They were showing tremendous results. So both the movement and the feeling um, seem to be beneficial. Again, I'm not making a medical claim. We don't have the re- I don't have the research on that. But it, it 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 it's just one of those totally makes sense kind of things. Well, you don't have to. It's it's interesting. Um, the Aussies and the physical therapy and the medicinal world—they're terrific at uh, finding research and utilizing research in proprioception. They call it, um, as far as kinesthetic awareness is concerned, gravitational sensory information. And the indiv- the individual that was the one who gets the credit for discovering the core, so to speak is an Aussie, Carolyn Richardson. Oh, uh, and, and, oh yeah. They, they do a number of things to increase uh, gravitational sensory information so that you're stronger and more resilient to your environment. And they work with golfers and they work with a ton of different other athletes. Um, and they very rarely bring that education to the Americas, but they're ahead of us uh, by, by far. You know, you take a bunch of prisoners, you stick them on an island. It's amazing what happens with with a bunch of indigenous uh, people as well who who happen to walk barefoot, who know better. There's there's a guy, a British guy that I know who's going to Australia for business for the first time. He's going through customs. You know, do you have anything to declare? What are you coming here for? He's, do you have any? Uh, do you have a, a, a criminal record? He goes, Ah, oh, crap. Do you need one still? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I'm good. I don't know how much longer you wanted to. I think we had like a time limit, didn't we? Yeah, probably. Here, I'll do an obnoxious thing and check my calendar while we're talking. Uh, That's fine. You know? I can keep going with you. I enjoy this conversation. Wait, hold on. I think I did something stupid. Um, I think I'm supposed to be talking to someone like now. Hold on one second. I've got to apologize to somebody. Go ahead. Possibly. Uh, Oops. Let's see if I did this. Pardon me. Uh, wait, what? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got to. Oh, man, sorry. Well, I'm glad. No, Stephen, oh, you're fine. Okay. I'm actually okay. I was mistaken. Happily, we've got a few more minutes. Okay. Well, why don't we do this, Stephen? I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, and I would love, I think we could go down this rabbit hole and talk about more of the physiology, the anatomy, more of a ton of different things. I would love to hear more about potential ideas that you have and, and improving the culture and whatnot. But why don't uh, you provide us with some of the uh, resources that we can either connect with you from movement, movement podcast to your um, TikTok uh, challenge to uh, your website to buy shoes. Please give us your information so our audience can, uh, can look you up. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. And secondly, um, clearly you've misunderstood me because that guy on YouTube told me I don't know anything. And so um, 
why don't I believe him? Um, finding us uh, is pretty simple. Simple. We're at zero shoes, X-E-R-O shoes. Dot com. If you're in the EU, we're zeroshoes.eu. If you're in the UK, zeroshoes.co.uk. And we are at zero shoes or slash zero shoes, wherever you happen to at or slash. But the um, that little TikTok thing that I mentioned zero is tiktok.com. Uh, it's basically at zero dot shoes. So look there. My podcast, The Movement Movement, um, you can find that at jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to join. There's no secret handshake. We don't sing a song every morning. Um, you don't have to pay anything. That's just the domain that was available. Um, but it's where you can find all the previous episodes, of which there are a couple hundred, where I get to talk to smart people like you guys and um, uh, and less smart people, unlike you guys. And although, actually, I can't think of anybody I talked to who wasn't smart and interesting. Um, and you'll find where to find the podcast, your favorite place that you can find podcasts and, um, all, all the links to all the places where there's, you can engage with that, um, socially as well. And what else? Those are the biggies in terms of finding us. Um, when you go to zeroshoes.com, you'll find there's a link at the top that says learn more, bunch of information in there. Um, if you look on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash zeroshoes, bunch of videos there, both educational, entertaining, uh, and a bunch of reviews from people who've been checking out our shoes. So I would check those out. Ooh, that reminded me of something I've got to go change on the channel now that we just launched eight new shoes for the fall of 23. Um, uh, I think that kind of covers all the spots where you can track us down. Oh, and we're, we're in about four or 500 stores worldwide. So if you go to our website and in the upper right-hand corner, there's a store locator link and you can see if there's anywhere near you. And if you don't find somewhere near you, find a store near you and let us know who they are and we will track them down until they decide to help people instead of hurt people. Oh, that's great. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate this conversation. Hopefully we can have it again down the road uh, when you're available. I look forward to what's next. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. Stephen, thank you. I appreciate it as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 